If you are a native Louisianan and have been, your parents have been for generations, you probably have heard your parents or grandparents talk about the devastation of Hurricane Audrey in 1957. As uh, people went to bed on Wednesday, June 26, the weather reports described a tropical storm brewing in the Gulf. And of course, they didn't have the weather satellites and technology that we do today. Uh, but overnight, um, Hurricane Audrey, well, it grew into a hurricane, a Category 4 hurricane. By the time people woke up Thursday, it was too late, really, to evacuate. Uh, Audrey made landfall Thursday, June 27, 1957. It destroyed 4,500 homes. It damaged an estimated 100,000 more in Louisiana alone. Uh, more than 500 people were killed, and 40,000 head of cattle were drowned by the storm surge and the flooding rains. Uh, prior to the storm, Cameron was the 10th largest fishing port in the United States, but uh, the storm reduced the town and the harbor to, to ruins. I came across an article about the hurricane's impact on Opelousas, and um, many trees were damaged, of course, and one person died, but um, one of the pictures of the destruction was actually of a, a church building. Turns out was right here, First Presbyterian Church at the corner of Maine and Cherry. Um, <clears throat> and some trees laid across the yard there. And just as we in Louisiana tell the story of the hurricane's destruction, um, the devastation in, in Judah at the time of Joel uh, was something that parents would pass on to their children and would be told through the generations. So let's go ahead and read Joel. It's, it's an Old Testament uh, book. Um, it's one of the minor prophets. Um, you can find it on page 760 in your pew Bibles. But uh, Joel will read um, chapter 1. This is the word of the Lord. Joel chapter 1. The, the word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it, and let your children tell, tell their children, and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. What the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth. And it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn, the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed. The ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up, the oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes. Pomegranate, palm, and apple, all the trees of the field are dried up. And gladness dries up from the children of man. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth. 
O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land, and to the house of the Lord your God, and cry out to the Lord. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. Is not the food cut off before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? The seed shrivels under the clods. The storehouses are desolate. The granaries are torn down because the grain has dried up. How the beasts groan. The herds of cattle are perplexed because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. To you, O Lord, I call. For fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you, because the water brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and divinely inspired word. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would empower your people, Lord, to recount your wondrous deeds, to learn more of your holy character and your glory. Um, Jesus, empower us to proclaim your good news, that you sacrificed yourself for sinners, that you were raised from the dead and are now exalted over all creation. And Holy Spirit, empower us to live lives worthy of the gospel of Christ and give us love for you and for one another. Amen. So some background information about Joel. We read in verse 1 that uh, Joel is a a prophet. He is one of the 12 uh, prophets, Hosea through Malachi, that uh, in the Hebrew scriptures were gathered into one one book. They're sometimes called minor prophets, not minor because of the importance of the message, but minor in length. They are shorter writings than Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and the like. Uh, Joel is the second book of the 12 minor prophets. Uh, Much of Joel is, is poetry. Uh, There's repetition, there's vivid imagery, there's symbolism. Um, Joel Joel is also prophecy. It is God's word for his people. It gives instruction on how the people should respond to the judgment of God that they see around them, and it foretells a coming day of the Lord that will bring ultimate judgment on the nations and salvation for God's people. Uh, So who is Joel? Joel is a prophet. The word of the Lord came to him as we read in verse 1. And he proclaimed God's message to the people of Judah and recorded it for us today. Uh, His name means the Lord is God. Yahweh is God. As Joel writes his message for the Lord, it's clear that he's very familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. And he cites and alludes to these other writings quite frequently. Um, As we'll see, Joel doesn't directly accuse Israel of any particular sins. Um, but he assumes the reader is familiar with God's promises of curses as a result of unfaithfulness to his covenant. And what follows then is the word of the Lord. Uh, Joel does not claim any authority for himself, but only that which is given by God. Um, John Calvin notes that Joel is a faithful dispenser of the truth entrusted to him by God. Um, It was Joel's job to pass this teaching on um, from God to, to God's people. Um, So God himself is speaking through Joel, and the Holy Spirit is using him as his instrument. Uh, This morning we'll consider the first chapter of Joel in three sections. First, in verses 2 through 4, an announcement 
to contemplate the destruction, an announcement. In verses 5 through 12, we'll look at a call to mourn the completeness of the devastation. So mourning in verses 5 through 12. And verses 13 through 20, uh, there's a call to repentance and to return to the Lord. So let's look at the announcement in verses 2 through 4 of contemplating this destruction. Uh, The announcement begins in verse 2. Hear this, you elders, give ear, all inhabitants of the land. As the prophet Joel communicates God's word, uh, the Lord is calling his people to give ear. Uh, The prophets are full of similar commands to listen and hear God's message. Hosea chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 say this. Hear this, O priests. Pay attention, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king. For the judgment is for you. For you have been a snare at Mizpah and a net spread upon Tabor. And the revolters have gone deep into slaughter, but I will discipline all of them. So the Lord calls his people to give ear, to hear what it is that he has to say. Uh, Verse 2, has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Um, What has happened in Judah is not your normal every day or every year judgment. What has happened has never happened before in in the days of the people or in the days of even their fathers. Uh, The severity of the destruction is unrivaled in history. Uh, The Lord is trying to get his people's attention. Uh, Martin Luther says, Experience teaches men much, and the old, when they see anything new or unusual, must know that it is not according to the ordinary course of things. He must acknowledge it as the unusual work of God. So the devastation we are about to hear described should get their attention. Uh, Verse 3, they're told to tell their children of it. This destruction is so unparalleled that it's something that will be told through the generations. It will always be remembered as much as the destruction of Hurricane Audrey or maybe the flood of 1927 have been told down through the generations in Louisiana. The message so far is this, wake up. Look around. This isn't the normal way of things. God is at work and not for blessing. Uh, God's hand of judgment is upon them. Uh, In verse 4, we finally find out what kind of devastation and destruction um, they are experiencing and they're called to pay attention to. Swarms of locusts have decimated their crops and their food supply. Their crops are completely ruined. The locusts haven't left anything behind for them to eat. And as a result, Judah will experience famine and financial ruin. Uh, Matthew Henry says, God is the Lord of hosts. He has all the creatures at his command. And when he pleases, he can humble and mortify a proud and rebellious people by the weakest and most contemptible creatures. Uh, We remember the account in Exodus as Moses went before Pharaoh in Egypt asking that uh, the people be let go. Uh, The eighth plague of God was sent to the Egyptians was locusts. Uh, Here, Exodus chapter 10, verses 4 through 6. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country, and they shall cover the face of the land so that no one can see the land, and they shall eat what is left left to you after the hail, and they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field, and they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants And of all the Egyptians, as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came on earth to this day. Then he turned and went out from Pharaoh. Uh, We see some parallels between the judgment of God on Egypt and God's current judgment on on Judah. 
And just as Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he refused to let the people go, so Judah has been callous against their current plague. Though they endure all this suffering, they have failed to repent and turn back to God. So having heard this announcement to listen up and to observe the devastation that Judah is experiencing, Joel goes on to describe the completeness of the devastation. This is verses 5 through 12, and we'll focus on the the mourning and the extent of the devastation. Uh, These verses are a great example of Hebrew poetry, so bear with this science teacher as I do my best attempt to analyze this poem for you. A few elements of the poem to point out. Uh, The writer employs repetition for emphasis. This is common in the scriptures. Um, The way a point is emphasized is is to repeat it over and over again or say it in a slightly different way and come at it from another angle. And as a teacher, uh, that's one of the tricks of the trade. In class, I'll often explain something as simply as I can, and then I'll go through the explanation using a model or a diagram, and then I'll try and relate it to something that the students are familiar with, and hopefully after having heard it, Uh, Three times in three different ways, the students understand what I'm trying to communicate. Uh, In Joel, there's there's some imagery and symbolism used, though much of it can probably be be taken literally. Uh, This morning, I want to look at three aspects of these verses, 5 through 12. First, we'll look at the description of the destruction. Then we'll look at who this destruction is affecting and who's being addressed. And finally, third... Uh, What are these people commanded to do? So first, let's look at the description of the destruction. Uh, First, we see that the wine is cut off in verse 5. The things that people typically enjoy are no longer available. Uh, Verse 6 mentions a nation coming up against the land. This could be an anthropomorphism of locusts from verse 4, essentially saying these locusts are so devastating, they're like an invading army. Or, as John Calvin has interpreted it, it could literally be an invading army. Um, God had tried all means possible to bring his people back to him. Uh, But thus far, they have proved to be callous and unmoved by God's discipline. In any case, the force of destruction is fierce. It's compared to a lion with sharp teeth. Matthew Henry notes that locusts become as lions when they come armed with a divine commission. Uh, Verse 7, the the vine is laid waste. The fig trees are splintered. Notice in verses 6 and 7 how these things are referred to. God calls them my land, my vine, my fig trees. Uh, There's nothing in all creation that God does not claim as his own. Uh, He had chosen his people and he had consecrated the land to himself as well. And along these same lines, we read in verse 9 that the grain offering and the drink offering for the house of the Lord has been cut off. The destruction of crops and hunger is one thing, but to be unable to offer the Lord the sacrifices that he requires is another level of severity. Uh, We can gather from this statement that worship of God in Judah had almost ceased. In verse 10, we see the fields are destroyed and the ground mourns. In fact, the ground is doing what the people should be doing. Uh, Verses 11 and 12 reiterate that the harvest has perished. And not only has the produce of the field dried up, but gladness itself has dried up. This destruction is not only external Uh, to the crops and the fields and the vineyards, the impact is designed to have an effect internally on the hearts of the people. Uh, Next, let's look at these verses with an eye to who is being addressed and who is or should be affected by this plague of locusts. We see throughout that God's judgment has come on all the people, from rich to poor. Uh, It has not left any segment of the population untouched. Verse 5, the drunkards and the drinkers of wine are called out. 
the rich who have enough time on their hands and money to afford sweet wine, uh, even they are affected. Even their wine has been cut off. Uh, Skipping to verse 9, we see that even the priests and the ministers of the Lord are mourning, that they are unable to bring the offering before the Lord. Uh, Verse 11, the farmers, the tillers of the soil are directly impacted. Their crops have been ruined. And verse 12, we see the completeness of this devastation. It has affected all the children of man, it says. Everyone. No one is exempt from the suffering that is taking place. And one last observation in this section. What are these people commanded to do? What instructions have they been given? Verse 5, they should awake. Open their eyes. See what's happening. You know, what's happening is unprecedented. Wake up. Take note. Uh, Also, verse 5, they're to weep. They're to wail. Uh, There is a godly grief that is a right response to God's discipline and judgment. Uh, Verse 8, they are to lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The picture here is of uh, a bride who's a virgin who's betrothed to be married, but uh, this man died before the wedding. Um, There should be intense, heartbroken mourning here. There is a lamentation that Judah should experience for her infidelity to the Lord. Uh, Verse 11, they are to be ashamed. This is the Lord's purpose in all of this calamity, to strike shame into these people who had thus far disregarded God's judgments. Should all of these judgments come as a surprise to Judah? You know, why are they having to endure these these curses? Joel, again, never directly gives us the reason uh, for these judgments or accuses Judah of any particular sins. Yet, as I mentioned in the beginning, Joel is full of references to the law. Joel assumes that you're familiar with the Old Testament historical narratives in which Israel and Judah fail again and again to keep the covenant, and God eventually brings the curses of the covenant upon his people. Um, What these people are experiencing is exactly what God told them he would do. The book of Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law. It's a collection of Moses' sermons to the people of Israel in which he lays out the law of God. And and as with all covenants, there are blessings for obeying, obeying the law and curses for disobedience. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 28 lays out these blessings and these curses. Uh, The blessings include things like they will be a nation set apart. Um, There's promised prosperity. Their cities and their fields will be be blessed. Their children and their livestock will be blessed. Their enemies will be defeated before them. Uh, The Lord will be their God. He will be their, and they will be his people. If only they obey. All of those good things will happen. But uh, halfway through Deuteronomy 28, uh, verse 15 says this. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. And he goes through and lists off all of those blessings that he mentioned in the first half of chapter 28 have become curses. Their cities and fields will be cursed. Their children, their livestock will be cursed. There's promised confusion and frustration in the things they try to do. Uh, They will be defeated by their enemies. And in verse 38, here is one of the Lord's promised curses for disobedience. I'll actually read Deuteronomy 28, verses 38 through 40. You shall carry much seed into the field and shall gather in little, for the locusts shall consume it. You shall plant vineyards and dress them, but you shall neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes, for the worm shall eat them. You shall have olive trees throughout all your territory, but you shall not anoint yourself with the oil, for for your olives shall drop off. 
So what has happened to them is exactly what the Lord has promised. Their disobedience to the Mosaic Covenant would result in these curses, including the Lord sending these locusts to to devour their crops, and that the wine and the oil would be dried up, exactly what we see happening, and as Joel has reported. Uh, The prophet Amos prophesies to a people in a similar situation. Uh, Here, Amos chapter 4, verse 9. This is the, the Lord speaking. I struck you with blight and mildew, your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees, the locusts devoured, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. The goal of the Lord's correction is that the people would forsake their own way and return to the Lord, yet this people have persisted and have stubbornly refused to, to submit to Yahweh. You know, what does this have to do with us today? Um, well, here's what it has to do with us. Apart from God's mercy and grace in Christ, uh, we are in the same predicament as these Judeans that, that uh, Joel is speaking to. Um, we have all failed to keep God's moral law, uh, which involves loving God and loving our neighbor, the Ten Commandments. Uh, none of us has kept those commandments, and therefore we deserve the curses of the covenant. We deserve all that's described here in Joel and even more. In fact, the wages of sin is death. We justly deserve God's wrath and the fires of hell for all eternity because of our sin. And we see in Joel chapter 1 that God has provided these curses with increasing severity to remind his people of their obligation to turn back to God. God's design is that we would not only hear what he has to say and understand it, but that it would penetrate to our hearts to turn us back to him. Uh, The word of God through Joel condemns Judah for their indifference to God's judgments. As we live with what remains of our sinful nature, as we live in a sinful world in rebellion against its creator, as we are tempted to gratify our sinful flesh, uh, we can easily become hardened by sin if we let it go on unchecked. Uh, Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 and 13 say this, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Matthew Henry has another gem. Uh, Those that will not be roused out of their security by the word of God shall be roused by his rod. So let us not be indifferent to God's word or God's discipline. Uh, let us not take God's holy law lightly or transgress it without a holy fear of judgment. Uh, more on this at the end. So uh, first we heard the announcement of the destruction. We've, we've mourned the affliction of the hand of God on Judah. Uh, the last section in verses 13 through 20, we hear a call to repentance. Joel begins calling the people of Judah to return to the Lord. And where does it begin in verse 13? In the house of the Lord. Uh, the priests and the ministers are to lead in the repentance. They are to lament over their own sin and the sin of their nation. And, and then they are to call a fast in a solemn assembly and gather the elders and inha- inhabitants of the land to join them in crying out to the Lord. In verses 13 and 14, we kind of see an outline for how the people are to do the work of repentance. The first thing they are to do is is call a fast, consecrate a fast. At its core, fasting says, God, I hunger for you more than I hunger for food. I'm going to forego my physical hunger to seek you. 
I'm devoting the time and energy that I would have given to preparing meals and eating to, to seeking your face. You know, I will use my physical hunger to drive me to seek you, and I will not satisfy my physical hunger until my spiritual need is met in you, God. Second, they are to call a sacred assembly. You know, it was not enough that each one should abstain from food at his own house, but they were all to gather together to confess openly that they were guilty before God. Uh, Just as God's judgment had reached all of the people, so all of God's people should be involved in the repentance. All of the inhabitants of the land needed to join the assembly to repent and to seek the Lord. Uh, Third, they are to gather the elders. The elders should have been an example for the people, for the younger members of society in in keeping the covenant. But um, now the elders of the people would have to play an important role in leading the people in repentance. And what would they do during this assembly? It says they should go to the house of the Lord and cry out to the Lord. The people were to cry out to the Lord in prayer, seeking his mercy, confessing their transgressions, asking for forgiveness, recommitting to doing things the Lord's way, crying out to the Lord. You know, putting on sackcloth by itself is an empty sign. Even fasting, if the goal is not seeking the Lord, is is pointless. Um, All of these instructions the Lord gives for this repentance are designed to cause the people to seek the Lord and to cry out to him for mercy. Uh, Verse 15 says, alas for the day. You know, despite the terrible extent of the judgment that they had already experienced, the prophet here indicates that there is something even worse to be feared unless they turn to God. And what is it? It's the day of the Lord, the day of Yahweh. The Jews understood that the day of the Lord is the day that God would stretch forth his hand to execute judgment. Of course, they believed it would be judgment against their enemies, but we'll see in a moment that this is not the whole story. We see in Joel 1 uh, and 15 that the day of the Lord will involve destruction from the Almighty. On this day, God himself will appear as judge of the world, and he won't use locusts or an invading army to judge. He will execute his wrath on the unbeliever and on the fallen sinful world. We also read that this day is near. This serves as a warning to Judah. The devastation they are now seeing is only a preview, only a taste of what is to come. Uh, This is to be our understanding of the day of the Lord as well. It will come like a thief in the night, as we have read recently in 1 Thessalonians. So we are to be ready. And verses 16 through 20 expound upon the great destruction that, that Judah has endured. Uh, Verse 16, there's hunger, there's abandoning the worship of God, there's drought. In verse 17, the barns are empty. In verse 18, even the livestock are groaning and are perplexed at the suffering that they're enduring. Uh, Verse 19, drought has led to fire, which devoured what little remained. Again, even verse 20, the beasts of the field are without pasture and without water. But nestled in the midst of this section, there are six little words, beginning of verse 19. To you, O Lord, I call. In the midst of all the devastation, we have a small ray of hope. In the midst of a people who have been callous toward the Lord um, and have gone their own way, we hear a voice calling out to the Lord. Uh, Forsaking the Lord's way had only resulted in more and more devastation. So there's nowhere left to turn but to the Lord himself and to seek his mercy And we will explore this a lot more in chapter 2, and I I have the privilege to preach in two weeks from today on that, so we'll we'll move on then. But in conclusion for this morning, 
Having read and heard of God's judgment on Judah, um, I ask you, as Jesus did to those present in Luke 13, um, do you think that these Judeans are worse sinners than you and me because they suffered in this way? Uh, No. Jesus tells us that unless we repent, we will all likewise perish. You know, the question, why did this happen to them, is really the wrong question. We should be asking, you know, why hasn't this happened to me? Uh, They were all guilty of disobeying God's commands and keeping his covenant just as we are. And we deserve that plague of locusts, the drought, the invading army. We deserve all of that and more uh, because of our sin and because of our failure to love God and to obey him. But here is God's promise to Israel, as God spoke to Solomon when he had uh, dedicated the temple. Uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 7, 12-14 records God's promise to his people. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command the locust to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people... If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. That was God's promise to Israel. If they would turn back to him, he would forgive. And the promise for us today is is very similar. Uh, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness brothers and sisters we have the benefit of a new covenant what what the book of hebrews calls a better covenant Uh, jesus completely fulfilled the law on behalf of all who trust in his name as our substitute he took on the penalty for our sins jesus spilled his blood for us in acts 13 paul preaches to the people at antioch He says this, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. That was Acts 13, verses 38 and 39. Uh, Brothers and sisters, we we have disobeyed God. We have failed to keep the law. We justly deserve God's wrath. But God is merciful and gracious. And if we repent... As the Holy Spirit works in our hearts to convict us of our sin and to reveal the truth of of salvation in Christ, uh, we will be saved. We will not endure God's wrath because Christ paid for all of our sins on the cross. Let me read Romans chapter 8, the first four verses. There There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Again, I'll say more about this topic as we look into Joel chapter 2, two weeks from now, but... If you want to know more about what it means to be in Christ or to know God's forgiveness, please find me or find one of our elders after the service. Let us pray. Lord, grant that we may be awakened from our indifference, 
that we may not be inebriated by the charms of Satan and the world, but by your spirit, Lord, rouse us to real groaning, that being ashamed of ourselves, we may flee to your mercy and with a sincere heart to call on you and seek that reconciliation which you daily offer us by the gospel of your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.